Welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of life, the show of bourbon, the show of Seagram's, the show of dedicating your life to whiskey, being an actor, and then moving into the corporate world. It is my pleasure. You know, this is a long time in the making. Mr. Al Young of Four Roses Bourbon. He's been with the company for over 50 years. He's a Hall of Famer, and he was recently in town to conduct a whiskey society at Seven Grand in Austin. It really helped me understand the man himself, the history of bourbon in modern times as well, and what a big role Al's wife plays in this whole journey. He's recently in town. We got to sit down, sip through the four amazing marks of Four Roses Bourbon, and chat about his life, his decorated life. 50, 50 years. I was going to swear overtly there, but I won't refrain. So, without further ado, it is my pleasure to share this great chat with Al Young of Four Roses. You tasked me with finding the whiskeys right. that meet your criteria, and we'll work together about putting this together. So I told him what I was looking for, <clears throat> some whiskeys with a little bit of a southern approach, maybe yeah. some pecans or some oak or some honey and stuff sure. like that, you know. The southern and, sensibilities. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, one day Julie uh, asked me again about that bottle, and I said, I like the bottle. She said, well, good. That's the one we're going to use That's for incredible. your commemorative whiskey. Yeah. And I thought, wow. And, of course, it's not the same bottle. It's a little sturdier, made with new molds and everything like Interesting. that. Interesting. So just that the company would take her suggestions and run of it yeah. to make it work is just amazing. I mean, I never asked for all this stuff. How does it fit? You know, I don't have a statue in my name. <laughs> Not yet, right? But in other words, you kind of have this living emblem of your legacy. I mean, how does that feel to Four Roses commemorate you, trust you, to appreciate you, and said, here is our homage to you, Al? Well, first of all, it was extremely flattering, and it was, secondly, uh, I feel honored beyond compare. Yeah. But to find out how, how this impacted people, in addition to me, would probably best be relayed through a story about my wife. See, I, I didn't have a bottle of it to begin with. Really? And then finally I got a bottle, and I brought it home, and I do a lot of work on the dining room table at our house. I mean, it spread everything out. It gives me a chance to look at it. So yeah. when I brought this bottle home, I had it sitting on the table, and I'd ask my wife to take a look at it. And, of course, she was very impressed with it. So one night I was sitting there working on the computer and everything, and I kept every once in a while I'd get up and walk around and look at that bottle from all sides yeah. because I couldn't believe that it actually had happened and that it was doing it. And so finally bedtime came around. She says, I'm going up. I thought, okay. So I just kept working away. And finally she said, Al, would you quit with the bottle already and come on upstairs? <laughs> it's time to go to bed. 
<laughs> it's like so, looking at your reflection in the mirror. Is yeah, it kind of like that? <laughs> it's exactly right. And 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 most importantly, in many cases, she's my bellwether. She can she can bring all of this down to a more realistic level. Yeah. But again, I never saw any of this, and all of that stuff about being in the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame and being in uh, the Whiskey Magazine Hall of Fame. These were not things that I actively campaigned for. Yeah. It's that's what makes it so sweet. It is. Know? It is. Because do yeah. you, do, you, do you find, you know, you're, you're traveling around and sometimes the reward is in the journey itself. You know, you accumulate and you amass these travels, these conversations, and that's really the the rewarding part. I think it is, and as you're well aware, we do brand education programs at different points in the country, and what we do is we go out and try to give people some of the history, expose them to where the brand is today, kind of look at uh, giving them information that only we knew. And that's an interesting point, by the way. The people today are becoming more informed, probably through programs like the Brand Education Program. Sure. But they're asking questions that only we ask each other, probably on a Friday afternoon as we're getting ready to go home for the weekend. Yeah. You know, uh, what do you think of the quality of the rye is? How's the corn? What are you thinking about the proof? Should we <clears throat> raise the uh, distillation proof in the still just a little bit or leave it alone? Yeah. You know, all of those jockey questions. And then where's the best place in the warehouse to, to store your whiskey? Which in Four Roses' case is all of them are good. Yeah, yeah. And in all of our 20 warehouses, there's not one that we devote to anything any different than any other. They're all great. We treat them all the same. Yeah, that's egalitarian. Yes. You know, I think that's a great thing. You know, I look back and you're an author, you're a historian, (laughs) you're a notable pop icon and whiskey. But always the question that always comes to mind is you started studying theater arts education at West Kentucky University and then later in South Illinois University. Were you destined to be an actor? Were you destined for the stage at that point? I had flirted with the idea of being in the theater and then I began to see how rough it was. Before I went to work for Seagram's, I worked in public relations for a professional theater company in Louisville, Kentucky. And that's where I found the woman that I thought I wanted to spend the rest of my life with and have. Yeah, amazing. And yeah, and I, I, I told her, I said, you know, I, I want you, I would like for you to marry me. And she said, well, I'll tell you up front, if you're going to marry me, you can't keep doing this for the rest of your life. <laughs> you're going to have to find a job that makes a good deal of money or, <laughs> yeah. you know, so we can start a family and all that sort of thing. So I found out from a friend that Seagram's was hiring and uh, went into that with a good attitude and uh, basically got all the forms made. I did the physical and all that. My time was running out at my other job, and I kept thinking, are they going to call me and tell me when to come to work? All right. And then so finally I called them with about three days to spare, and I said, look, are you going to hire me? Yeah. And I said, well, when do you want me to come to work? Well, come to work Monday. <laughs> so you prompted them. Yeah. This well, is the kind of attitude I think people could learn from when trying absolutely. to secure that job. So I, I, uh, I went into work Monday and, you know, I wasn't afraid of the job or afraid that I had a job, but I was just kind of beginning to test the water. So I said, I'm for sure hired and I'm working for you. And they said, yeah. I said, well, when did I start? <laughs> and they said, you just did. Was that part of the... I love it that they were waiting for... He's going to call. We know he's going to call. And then you call. Now history is history. So then then uh, the other side of that, uh, 
when I felt like I was secure and comfortable for yeah. the moment, <clears throat> I said, well, good, because I need a week off next week. I'm getting married. <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, that's okay. Sure, that's fine. And I thought, man, I love this place. <laughs> you know, bear in mind, I was only going to go to work there to get a couple of years experience. Right. I mean, up to that time, I'd, I had taught for a while. I had done these different things. Yeah. <clears throat> I had what you could call a fluid resume. <laughs> but I was looking for something concrete that would really look impressive if you get the experience for a couple of years sure. and then decide to go in a different way with your career. When you put in those two years, let's say, you know, in it, let's, let's say this stuff, this whole illustrious career didn't happen, but what would you be doing, you think, after those two years, kind of investing in Seagram's for a little bit, going back to teaching, going back to the know. stage? I don't know. I really don't know what I would do because that was back in the 60s. Yeah. We all know that there was nothing but mayhem in the 60s. Right, right. But at the end of those two years, I made a calculated decision that I could use what I already had in the way of education. I could also learn more because, you know, their theory was if you've got degrees or working on an advanced degree, then that means you're trainable. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So we can train you to do what we'd like for you to do. And they did. <clears throat> so everything that I, I worked out in terms of working in the distillery work yeah. or being in bottling or being in finished goods or even in chemistry labs or sensory labs, all came out of that training. A blank slate. Exactly. They knew you had the skills. They knew you had certainly the personality. And they said, <laughs> this guy can capture, a, a, you know, a classroom, a group of people. They knew you were trainable. That's a really interesting point. I don't know that a lot of has changed in that respect when people hire, right? But like, I, there's a specific I skill set. I think set. it's something that people would like to see in a future employee. Yeah. Is a willingness to want to do and then the ability to get it done. It's incredible. And married this whole time. I'll tell you what, that's oh, yeah. admirable. That's admirable. You know, you really, if you were doing an interview, the person you should interview would be her, not me. <laughs> <clears throat> but, is, uh, is she going to write some of your memoirs? I don't know uh, what she plans to do. She, we've been married now for 51 years that's last incredible. June. And, uh, and like all things, she stayed with me when we moved around a lot. Yeah. When they closed the distillery in Louisville, we went to live in Cincinnati, working at the distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Mm. And then when an opening came up at Four Roses, where I'd worked before, uh, I came home one afternoon and I said, uh, we're leaving, we're moving. She said, I have a teaching job. What are you talking about? Right. I said, well, they've got a, an opening for, at that time, a ship supervisor, which I hoped would end up working into being a distillery manager. <clears throat> and I said, uh, I think it's a good place to go. Gut feeling? Uh, and I said, there's not much not much of a future at the Lawrenceburg plant because there are so many people. Right. But there might be a chance to shine a little bit. So she said, if you're convinced, let's do it. So we packed up, moved everybody to Lexington, Kentucky to work at the distillery in Lawrenceburg. Mm. Uh, one son was, my only son rather, was our only son was in Louisville, Kentucky in college. And our oldest daughter was going to college and our youngest was still in elementary school when, wow. we, when we went to Lexington. So basically we uprooted a family and uh, as a result of all of that, it worked out very well. Yeah, sometimes you have that doubt where I don't know if this is gonna work out, but I've got a gut feeling that this is the way 
ago. Yeah, I mean, I, it was just something about it that I liked, and and part of it was the people yeah. that worked there already. Uh, I wasn't looking for an easy road to hoe, or road to hoe. I was just looking for some place to concentrate on doing something and doing it well and doing it right. Yeah. And the management at that time was dedicated to that. The workforce was dedicated. I mean, I had people working for me that had already had 35 years in the service Man. before I ever got there with yeah. them, you know? And uh, so, yes, we all had to have training in analytical chemistry. We all had to have training in yeast and everything like that. Everything but when in you between. came down to it, or when you, when, when you arrived on a Monday morning, I would go to the fermenter room, and if a certain fermenter operator was there, uh, who had been there for a long time, I'd say, how's it looking this morning, Jimmy? And he'd say, well, you might want to look at number eight. I don't think it's coming along the way it ought to. This wasn't any kind of a test. Right. This wasn't any kind of high-level chemistry training. Just this a, was kind visual. of like a, a feel, and right? the fact that yeah. he had done this so long that by taste and by sight, he knew what was going on. Intuition. So, so yeah. I mean, so you learn to trust people like that. Yeah, those on-the-job experience. It's challenging for me and also riveting to think about which slices of your life should we cut into, which should we talk about. One that I find really notable, and I know you've talked about this a bit, bourbon was not a luxury good for the States for a long, long time. I'm not sure why it developed such a reputation, but now we're in the age of enlightenment with bourbon, which is a great, you know, it's a great, great thing. And we're sitting here enjoying some Four, Four Roses bourbon. But what do you think contributed to Americans anyway, saying bourbon, really not my thing anymore, kind of passe? Well, you know, you've heard about canyons that were so deep that they create their own weather. Yeah. Well, Seagram's, the company that I originally went with, were so large and they had so many brands that basically they, the one thing they would do is they would put advertising money in one brand and build it up to a certain level. Mm. And if it worked, fine, because then they'd withdraw the support. And if it sailed along, better yeah but if it didn't they drop that support and go influence the other 299 interesting so they were shaping their own future and they were shaping the taste preference of the united states with blended whiskey in the 1940s yeah they were from canada they were a blend house they knew how to make that so they were making blended versions of four roses bourbon during the 40s 50s and all the way up to the 90s before they gave up ownership and got out of the business, meaning by that the Brockman family that owned the company. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Kieran people that bought it, Kieran Brewing from uh, Japan, sure. they realized that Seagram's had made the decision to sell it as a blended whiskey in the United States while they were selling it as a bourbon overseas right. since the late 50s and wanted to turn that around by eliminating the blended whiskey and selling only Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. It's, I mean, so they knew. So now we're back in all 50 states. It's, which is incredible. I mean, it is. The Japanese and their commitment to whiskey has launched this other chapter, this other level of dedication. 
honestly varies and it contrasts the states in a really big way and that they stand committed to a single task a single talent until that's perfect you know and in a sense that kind of culture do you feel like that culture really influenced how now four roses is about mastery of bourbon mastery of flavor mastery of quality of the tasks that compose this beautiful bottle i think so mike basically uh, the reason is because we've handed that ideal or that striving yeah. for perfection down through different generations of people now. After looking at it for 50 years, <laughs> I can say that. <clears throat> but everybody is dedicated to not putting out bad whiskey. Yeah. So we don't, you know, the Four Roses 80 proof whiskey is not a cast off whiskey. No. At 80 proof, it has all 10 of our recipes in it. And basically, that was the kind that, that Seagram's was selling overseas from the late 50s as a, as a Four Roses bourbon. Yeah. The blended whiskey was usually composed of about 65% neutral grain alcohol and some blending sherry and some, Ooh, some sherry caramel, as well. caramel. Really? And some aged whiskeys. And then they really got capricious with it and started using light whiskey, and then it became an almost all spirits blend. Mm. So they were good at what they did. Sure. And they shaped the market and drove it. But the bourbon people were so well received overseas that it was phenomenal and probably was one of the divining points for Kieran to say, let's bring it back into the United States. Yeah. Let's see what it does. Do you, do you listen to much music? You a love little. music? Bourbon to me, in this state, in this beautiful state, we have the small batch, single barrel, single barrel proof, barrel proof. I mean, this is a hard bottle. Come on, sipped it before you came in just to relax a little bit, right? <laughs> Delicious. Bourbon is jazz. It is a passionate, unbridled expression of the romance that Americans have for spirits. And to see Four Roses return to that deep passion as Kieran said hey you guys can do this we support this love we're already seeing it in Japan and these bourbons this is truly an American spirit isn't it it is and, and the one thing if we could digress for just a minute Absolutely. you said well why now how come yeah. what's happened <clears throat> the whole idea is the younger generations are sort of malleable like I was when I first started in the business yeah, back yeah. in 67 to that, we added training, we added the brand education programs, we added a little bit more than just making a quality product. We wanted to make sure that people knew a little bit about the history, a little bit about the integrity of the brand, yeah. and to some degree, something about the production process. Sure, very because it's very interesting. One of the folklore is that Seagram saved all the yeast strains from years ago. Is that true? And then those are kind of reused, repopulated? Yeah, Seagram's had a, a research and development group in 1937 mm. that did about anything and everything they could do to yeast, grain, water, dis distillate, to aged whiskeys, to explore the ramifications of such stuff as where's the best place to store it? What about heat? What about cold? Right. You know, what about non-iron-free water? What does that have as an effect? Sure. And, and what kind of yeast do you think is right? So they developed 
a library that's been estimated over 300 different kinds of yeast. Wow. And over time, five of those yeasts became the core of the Four Roses uh, recipe program, along with two mash bills. So, you know, over time, if we take one yeast and one mash bill, we've made one bourbon. Yeah. So during the manufacturing season, we make 10. <laughs> People think we're nuts. It's a little nuts, but I like it in a mad scientist kind of way, right? It is. It Crazy. is because yeah. a lot of people in the industry, and I'm not picking on them because sure. that's the fun thing about our business. We all know each other. Yeah. I mean, if you have been around for any time at all, you know uh, the different ones that are master distillers, the one that owns the company, things like that. But we all know each other. Sure. Basically, there are no surprises there. But they make whiskey according to the way they want to make it, and they put out some good stuff. But the point is they will cut it off at different ages or mm. different proofs. Right. And it's basically, with a couple of exceptions, the same bourbon. That's right, yeah. Now, I'm not talking about rye. I'm talking about bourbon. Yeah. So is it wrong to do that? I don't think so. I think that that's probably the way it all began anyway in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But we just stepped it up to a, a higher level by having 10 recipes that, we, that the endless combinations are out there. Yeah. We can make flavors and aromas. <clears throat> we can make things that we haven't even looked at yet before we have to go back to making things people are familiar with. It's safe to say that beyond the, the beautiful aesthetic and the labels themselves and the, the previous yellow label, Four Roses may in fact be the most colorful the mo- most robust bourbon that's in the market because it has every element. It has a little bit of, I'm going to go into actors, right, but it has a little bit of that Clark Gable swagger, has a little bit of that Jimmy Stewart down-to-earthness, right? Every sip, because I, again, to prepare for the interview, I had to sip some of this bourbon before it came in out, but it's so diverse. It's so rich. It's so flavorful, and this is a true testament to how cerebral but yet passionate you guys have been in composing each of these marks. It's truly incredible. Most, you know, because sometimes uh, I always go to music because that's the way that I understand analogies, right? But some of this stuff is like Black Sabbath, really, really singular note, but this is orchestral. Does that make sense? It does, (laughs) it does. Super orchestral, deep lows, wonderfully shimmering highs. I mean, this is... Very, very. If this was a woman, I probably would be married to one of these bottles. Huh? I don't know which one yet. I'm still deciding. And that journey is really the pleasurable part, I think. Good. It's not bad, no? Well, you know, it's a lot of the talent that's involved in this rests on the shoulders of our master distiller, Brent Elliott, mm. who's always mixing and matching. And in addition to controlling the quality and the reliability of the brands. In other words, if we make a bottle of small batch Mm -hmm. in the next week or so, of course, we wouldn't just make one, we'd make a bunch. (laughs) But if you bought that bottle and waited a year, I hope not, but you waited a year and you bought a bottle from a different batch, the flavor and aroma should be the same when you open them. Yeah. Because we like to make whiskeys that not only do you want to taste once, but you want to taste it again. Take her out again. 
and for you a nice want to thing, buy yeah. a bourbon, and then you want to buy it again. Yeah. You don't want to say, man, that bourbon was touted above anything I've ever heard of, and I don't know who was touting it, but I don't think they were right. <laughs> you know, for my taste buds. Yeah. And we, we like to make whiskeys that don't bite. We like to make whiskeys that have a long, smooth finish. Yeah. So there's a little bit of thought in just about everything we do. From the selection of the grain, quality of the water, even down to the byproduct. You know, for a long time, <laughs> in the early days, we used to take all of the spent grain yeah. and stuff that came off the bottom and still after the alcohol was removed and feed it to cattle. Great solution, right? They well, love that stuff. That sounds good. <laughs> but we were conscious of the environment even back then. From the standpoint, so modern people have found out there's nothing more harmful to the ozone layer than then, what's ever left over after the cow gets done digesting it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we had a large herd, and when we realized that was going on, and this has been a number of years ago, we got rid of our cattle. We put in drying units to dry the grain and evaporation units to take the syrup and turn it into protein-enriched and solution yeah. to mix back together again and then sell it or give it away to farmers to feed to livestock. Interesting, okay. And you're saying, wait a minute, you're just circumventing this whole thing. You said it's dangerous, <laughs> but you're doing this for cattle. Well, that's short weight gain. Yeah. Short weight gain in livestock. Whereas we, you know, we were hanging on to our cattle forever just as a means to try to get rid of what's left over after you make whiskey. Yeah. But it's become very environmentally important to figure that out. Among so the environment has been immensely important lately, right? And again, fifty plus years career, you've bound to see some of these things change. Do you think that people more than ever are concerned about how you make your product and how you deal with the waste products? Well, you know, when I started in '67 and was making all of these different products. One time I was making gin, I was making vodka, I yeah. was making neutral grain alcohol in addition to light whiskey and and bourbon. Nobody really cared about what went into it or how it went together. Yeah. Was it non-GMO? I mean, we didn't even have the anachronism of GMO. Right, right. But now people are beginning to understand what all of that means and they're seeking items that are non-GMO and that's what we are yeah. and everything that we do is based on reliable research to satisfy what the customer is asking and what they want for it so you know it's, it's remarkable people come through the distillery on tour and they want to know uh, whether it's at the warehouse or whether it's in the distillery Where's the best place to store the barrels? Where's your secret spot? Right, right. Where, what, what happens if you distill it too high or you distill it too low or, you know, these variables that are going on. And then you get a really interesting question every once in a while, like, what do you do with the dust that comes off your grain? Whoa, interesting. Very yeah. detail-oriented. So then you have to tell them about dust collectors and ferrying that dust over to where we dry the grain and mixing it in with that grain particulate. Wow. So Smart we don't way to waste integrate. anything. Yeah. 
So from from the kernel, as we call it, <laughs> the, the grain kernel, all the way to to the bottle, the whole idea is to be economical and also to not waste anything. Man, when it's funny because in a sense you've been doing it all along, but now people are really concerned about that. Sure. And so it's kind of you come to the party, get to say, well, actually, guys. We know how to do this. We know how to be sustainable. We know how to care about the environment. And look how good this tastes. And with a willingness to share that information. Absolutely. I mean, we're highly transparent at Four Roses. Yeah. I mean, if, if we can feel comfortable in telling you something, we will. Yeah, absolutely. By that, I mean, it's a proprietary yeast. Yeah, the cookie menu could be used by others without any trouble at all. Sure. But the yeast... Our storage, uh, single-floor warehouses, uh, racks only six high, and each one has 24,000 barrels. This is something that anybody could duplicate. Sure. But, but, you know cover songs? People play cover songs. Sure. It's never quite the same. If you touched some of this bourbon, if you blended it, the one that bears your name, people could potentially do it, but it won't have the love. And it won't, ta- you know, it won't taste exactly the same. So free to everybody, open source. Everybody can go make the bourbon the way that Four Roses does. But it will never quite taste the same because the composer, the maestro, you guys, that love is what really dictates the flavor. It is. And, you know, Mike, we're going through an expansion program right now, which is going to increase our yearly output from 4 million gallons a year to 8. Wow, double. And to do that, we had to figure a way to put another still, another doubler, another cooker uh, in that Spanish mission architecturally style building we've got down there in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Yeah. And then we had to figure out a way to increase the size of our yeast room and still keep it all in that building. And then we realized we'd have to add on to the building. Sure. So we tried to save the integrity of that Spanish California mission look by getting the same architects that built the original one in 1910. Are they still kicking? At they least are part around. Of, no they way. They are around. Oh, that's amazing. And, and let them help us with the design for the extra buildings that are now involved. Wow. But this is the, the passion that drives it, and this is the concern. We could have built the still and everything else right next to our warehouses, which are 45 miles away. Yeah. In Cox's Creek, Kentucky. But the things that drive that theory, economy, cost savings, and everything, do not compare to the preservation of the microclimate in the distillery. Yeah. What makes us work with the limestone water in the Salt River? All of these factors that have made us who we are. Absolutely, yeah. Tradition, are the reasons that we kept everything in Lawrenceburg for production and warehousing down at Cox's Creek. The preservation of culture. Exactly. Is, it's paramount to bringing something that's passionate and lovely. I mean, and, and this is not to disparage Seagram's, but the contrast is great. The contrast in culture is great. You want to make a good product, not just throw money at it. You know? And that organic growth, lips to liquor, as they say, or lips to liquid, right? This is the thing that helps Four Roses grow. You know, as an aside, when I talk to bartender friends in this industry, right, rather in this market, Four Roses is like they're in love with this thing. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> they don't they don't wear shirts and they could and they would like it just as a hint for merchandising, but it's a secret for them. It's still coveted. It's still below the radar, but it's absolutely delicious for them. And it's something about that's very intriguing, riveting. It's inviting for me, you know, to come in and say, where's the Four Roses party at? Because it's just a matter of sitting at a table, sipping what was the yellow label. You guys have done some redesign, but just enjoying that. So well done in that respect. You guys have preserved this culture for a long time now. And now I think that you are absolutely tantamount in making sure that we connect with this brand. I got to nerd out just a little bit. We now kind of consider the bourbon legends rock stars. They're signing bottles. They're probably signing breasts just to be, you know, I mean, there's this rock star stature. So you, I was listening to a story about how you met Jimmy Russell answering a, I think it was a a fire alarm. You guys have been friends for a long time now. Yes, we have. What, (laughs) in the most decorated and in the most saturated of the nights can you keep up with jimmy he's got some amazing stories about how much bourbon he is able to drink you know jimmy is the rightful legend of, of bourbon <laughs> yeah. bourbondom yeah I'm, I'm telling you great individual the whole family is really good um to keep up with jimmy russell in <laughs> terms of stamina is amazing now that he's 83 or so years right. old you know, I've, I've, we were all together at Bourbon Affair last last summer, and it was advertised that it was going to go from 7 to 10. Uh-oh. And so it was about 9.30, almost quarter to 10, and I was getting ready to go home. I thought, well, it's time to go home. I told my wife, I said, hey, we, we need to get out of here. we got stuff we got to get to tomorrow. <clears throat> well, here comes Jimmy. <laughs> and he said, where are you going? And I said, well, it's getting pretty close to 10. He said, sit down here and sign these bottles. People want to see you. Now, we, we were sitting at Wild Turkey, okay? Yeah. He says, sit down and sign the bottles. I said, all right. He said, but Jimmy, I've got work i got to do tomorrow. <laughs> he said, so do we. Yeah. And I said, but I've got to drive back to Lexington. He said, it's 19 miles. <laughs> And just gently and laughing all the time, he just let me know, yeah, we're all in this thing together, but the customer comes first. Sure. So hang out with us. Keep on going as long as you can. It's amazing. So uh, Jim Rodley's our former master distiller, and I were sitting out uh, in the foyer of a hotel in Chicago, I think it was, at 4 o'clock in the morning, waiting to get on a red-eye flight out to... Kentucky yeah. after doing a whiskey show in Chicago and then through the doorway came Jimmy Russell uh-uh. and I said Jimmy where have you been he says oh, I'm just getting in <laughs> I said okay and he said yeah I gotta go upstairs and get a couple hours sleep I gotta get on a plane and fly to West Virginia this morning <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking we're doing everything we can to just kind of get together to get on this plane to go back to Lexington <laughs> And this guy is doing that. Jim looked at me. It was almost like we said it together. Come on, let's get up and go. (laughs) I mean, these are the kinds of stories that will live on. You know, it's folklore in a sense, except you're a real guy. Jimmy's a real guy. And you have these 
just rich collection of experiences. These are things worth writing about, interviewing about. Do you ever think about commemorating these things as well? Committing, committing them to paper, maybe. Oh, committing probably. To, yeah. Probably somewhere along the way. Yeah. I think that that is that's going to be a hell of a story. I think about this, again, this incredible career, and we'll talk about your class tonight at Seven Grand, which is a treat for all of us. I'll see you there this evening as well. 76 years old, just had your birthday in June. What, if you could sit back and drink, it doesn't matter which of the four roses bourbon, but reflecting, how do you feel about this really incredible career you've had so far? You know, Mike, if I sat down and thought about it, I'd think probably about all the people that I've uh, met and all the people I've worked with over those 50, 51 years. Some of them are already gone. Some of them never got the chance to live as long as I have. Some of them never got a chance to work with the people that I've been able to work with. And and, uh, it's astounding. It really is. Mm. Uh, I looked up one morning, and suddenly now we were at 49 years. Never really thought about it. Wow. And then we got to 50. You remember earlier when I was talking to you, I never saw any of this stuff. Two years it, max, right? Yeah, it just, <laughs> it just all of a sudden, it was there. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I'm realistically uh, a pragmatist to know that it's just not all like dumb wonderment. Sure. <clears throat> but you look at it and you get caught up in this industry and you get caught up in doing stuff and you get caught up in doing symposiums and you go out for visits to people and you lose track of the length of time you've been in it. You're more focused on what are you doing during that time. In the moment. That's great, yeah. You know? So if if, if you're coming down <clears throat> here to Texas, I was here in Texas last year And so I was challenged to come back again this year. Not it wasn't like, do you want to come or do you not? That was not the issue. Certainly wanted to come, but it was challenged to figure out what facet of the story can we bring more to life. What can we do that would be a little bit different for people who have heard it before? Yeah. Or what can we do to make it? more viable for younger people this year that weren't there last year. Absolutely. You know, and and so that must have been a challenge. When we first started telling the story, we had a flip chart. <laughs> I mean, yeah, way right, back right. like you had in, in high school sure. or whatever, the paper pages and everything was laboriously written out and you had to flip the chart to keep on going point after point. Now you've got PowerPoint. Yeah. I'm sure more modern techniques now to get it in front of the people. People are a little bit more visual now than they were back then. Absolutely. So And more uh, ear-friendly. They want to hear it. And for some reason, they retain what they hear. Yeah. So basically, it's a challenge to put all that together into something that's not only informative, but a little bit entertaining. Uh, I mean, I found out that if you if people can laugh every once in a while, they tend to learn more than if they're just being knocked over the head with information. Right, absolutely. Levity yeah. is a great thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could sit sit there and tell you every step of the cooking process and everything, but after a while, 
you'll notice that people begin to nod off or one eye will droop while the other one's still <laughs> trying to hold on. Sure. And then when you do that, you know it's time to have a drink. <laughs> well, I've got two quite, you know, so many different things. We could talk about what actors influenced you, what influences the way you feel about bourbon when you travel. So many things. I hope that when the book comes out, some of this stuff is revealed and perhaps your wife gives the uh, kind of directorial capacity and she says, Al, this is, I, th- I think this is how we need to do this narrative. I, I think that's going to be a great thing. But two questions left for you. This one I ask of every guest, but for you it's going to be a little bit different. Let's say you're sipping the single barrel for roses and you're at any bar in the world, doesn't matter, or perhaps a porch or perhaps your wooden table in which you do all of your work. But you could have a drink with any classic actor or actress. Who would you love to just sit at that table or at that bar and have a conversation with and wax poetic about life? Wow, that really does tax my my, uh, ideas about it. I guess if I was going to reach back and talk about somebody from years ago, knowing how it probably would come out, I would say John Wayne. John Wayne. I mean, you know, just uh, to be in the presence of the guy and listen to him talk would be enough right there. Absolutely. uh, And more modern, probably probably Christian Bale. Oh, that'd be good as well. Yeah. I bet he loves a bit whiskey. Yeah, I think he is... He can say so much without saying anything. Right. His face? His face just, you know, focuses on the character and what he's trying to do. Yeah. So he might be one that you might want to have a taste with. I like that because I wouldn't have expected. I love Christian Bale. Prestige is one of his greatest roles, especially when you talk about playing two characters. These are great answers. John Wayne, Christian Bale. Well, you know, there are probably some others out there that uh, probably deserve some. Uh, I'm trying to think here. There was one that was that was in that uh, series on television that played a detective. Uh, I think it might be fun to to uh, the the actor that was uh, Quigley down under and Tom Selleck. Yeah, Tom Selleck. That oh, might that'd be, be fun. That'd be great. Just to watch the expression on his face. Man, no kidding. Now, see, this is, this is a whole other sideshow about who would Al drink with. That is also an exciting thing. You pick a particular bottle, a particular actor, and I've got some relationships in Hollywood. Maybe someday we can make that happen. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be hard to bring John back, I would imagine. <laughs> but, uh, on the feminine side now, wouldn't it be quite a hoot if she drank? Sit down with Jennifer Lawrence, another Kentuckian. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. That would be cool. To she do. drinks some stuff. I don't. Yeah. yeah she went maybe on record. We could bring her over to Four Roses. That sounds like a pretty good idea, Al. Yeah. We'll have to talk about that more. Well, my last question for you: You're in Austin, Texas, which embraces and loves bourbon, but especially embraces Four Roses bourbon. You're gonna be at Seven Grand tonight, talking about this wonderful lineup of things. What do you? If if I could walk away with any nugget from spending an hour with you in a class this evening, what would you want me to walk away from? What would and what could I expect? Well, you know, as far as, as the brand is concerned, 
I think we probably have to wrap that nugget up in maybe a couple of sentences. Sure. And that's the idea that I've strived all the time that I've been working in the industry, and it goes right along with Four Roses, to make whiskeys that don't bite, Yeah. whiskeys that have a smooth, long finish, and people want to not only drink it once, but they want to drink it again. That product continuity yeah. and be able, being able to have a predictable whiskey, I think is what's going to keep us going for a long time to come. I think that's a great point. <clears throat> You're exceptionally articulate, a man about town, consummate actor on the stage, delivering these beautiful lines. I can't tell you how thankful I am that Kent, Sean, put all this time together for us to spend and sip some whiskey together. This is life-changing for me, and I hope that this story, I hope that this conversation lives off, lives on beyond both of us, because this is a great moment, and I will see you this evening. I Really a pleasure. Thank you so much, Al. Well, you're very welcome, Mike. You've got to realize that I started out <clears throat> with my eyes set on some kind of theatrical career. Yeah. Yeah, but for 50-some-odd years, or for 40 at least of those 51 years, I did anything but. I ended up being a hard-nosed uh, distillery person to make a living. Yeah. It wasn't hard to get along with, but I didn't really do the theatrical end of it. But it's so much fun now to be able to go back and use what I was trained to do with the knowledge that I received yeah. to get the message out about Four Roses and bourbon in general. That's amazing. So I think I'm the one that should thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to do the interview. I love it. This has been such a pleasure, and hopefully we'll drink more bourbon together over the next few years. Al, thank you so much. I'll see you this evening. Yeah? Thanks so much. Sure will. Well, there we have it. The whiskey legend himself, Mr. Al Young of Four Roses, a decorated career of over 50 years dedicated to whiskey, seeing how things have changed, seeing how people have changed, and bringing these four amazing marks of four roses to everyone. You know, I'm going to stand by the single barrel. That's my pick. I mean, it's the one that feels the best. It tastes the best for me. It really connects. And to chat about his long life, I mean, there he's a modern legend. And, you know, bleak or not, we're, we're going to lose some amazing people. We've already lost some amazing personalities in the bourbon Kentucky game the community recently and you know i regret not getting a chance to sit down and chat with dave pickerel and talk about his life in the kind of way that i've gotten to sit down and chat with al about his so this is a great chat it's important to me and it really is a pleasure i feel very lucky to have these moments with these guys and i hope you guys enjoy listening to them it's really really nice to talk about life it's also nice to kind of revisit four roses sometimes you forget about it and you're like man this is a great fucking whiskey how and why did i forget about it in the first place. So, rant over. So, thanks everybody for listening to Show to V. No matter where you're thinking about traveling to next, London, maybe Spain, maybe Germany, or if you're thinking techno, I'm not that into it, but maybe I'm open, even if it's 20 years too late. Please, keep dancing. <laughs>